I want you to turn to Psalm 25 if you have your Bible. Follow along with us. A master class is the term given for a class taught by someone who has expert knowledge or skill in a particular area, especially in music. It was most often used before. Historically, these special courses weren't really available to the wider public, but now, thanks to the convenience and power of the internet, you can, any of us can listen in on lectures from really world-class instructors. You know, they throw a camera on them and uh, you can sit there and, and listen to people that we wouldn't have access to before. In fact, there's a whole website dedicated to this idea. You can visit masterclass.com, pay your fee, and sit under the teaching of the foremost authorities in a quite a wide variety of subjects. You can learn cooking from Wolfgang Puck, photography from Annie Leibovitz, ball handling and shooting from Steph Curry, in case you were wondering. I wonder if that has a lab with it. He sends you outside to go and practice, but... Now, I doubt that as I was scrolling through, I mean, they have a bunch of classes and all these celebrities that you've all, we've all heard of. Um, I doubt that all of the masters on the site really have a gift for teaching. How could they? But each of them definitely has something to say that is worth listening to and taking to heart. As I was scrolling down, you looked and each name was an expert in their field or a, or a foremost leader in their field. And, and I thought, yeah, I could see that. David Patterson, or excuse me, James Patterson on writing and those sorts of things. The 76 Psalms of David are like a magnificent master class taught by one of history's great champions. His lectures come to us in the form of poetry and prayer and music, but he discusses topics far and wide. He's not just stuck in a sanctuary. I mean, so if, if he was on the website, it would be categorized as, you know, David teaches poetry. Uh, but he's not just stuck. Uh, he's not just stuck in a sanctuary. No, he takes us from womb to tomb, and most importantly, David teaches us about how a real Christian faith operates in the day-to-day experience of our lives. And he speaks these truths not only under holy inspiration, but also from his wealth of experience, firsthand experience. He's able to speak firsthand as a leader in the field of spiritual life and spirituality and knowing the Lord. Now, this is information we all can learn from and information we should return to regularly as Christians, especially when we're struggling with understanding our circumstances in life or when we're trying to realize the will of God for our lives. Dr. J. Vernon McGee wrote this. He said, there are so many people today who are just question marks as far as their Christian lives are concerned. They don't understand this or that verse of Scripture. They don't understand why God does certain things. David's words speak to our hearts today. What is good for the saints of the past and will be good for the saints of the future is also good for us. And we would give a hearty amen to Dr. McGee there. So we're going to spend a little bit of time enrolled in David's master class on Wednesday night. Today, tonight's lecture is out of Psalm 25. Take a look at the beginning of this psalm. Now, we're not given the specific historical context there in the title, but David, we'll see, was in a time of great distress and discouragement. He was facing traitors around him, and he felt defeated by the traitor within his own heart as well. And so he was definitely going through some dark days, that's clear. But as is so frequent in David's songs, God's glory and God's grace shine through those dark clouds giving David the anchor and the shield that he needs, the hope for the waiting. And so 
He's got a lot to say to you and I tonight. We begin in verse 1. It says, To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, I trust in you. Let me not be ashamed. Let not my enemies triumph over me. David is, of course, an expert example when it comes to soul care and pursuing God. And all of us, you know, are interested in how to care for our spiritual lives, how to care for our souls, and how to pursue God more effectively. And David is a great expert in these fields. In this opening, he demonstrates for us at least two important truths. First, being a child of God does not mean we won't have doubts or discouragements or difficulties. Much to the contrary, really. You know, David is always very open in his songs about the intense despair that he would sometimes struggle with and with the real, very real dangers that he would face day by day. Uh, he didn't suggest at all that these weren't part of his regular life. In fact, it seems as you look into his songs and his prayers to the Lord here, I mean, he's always uh, wrestling with these sorts of things, either internally in his heart or externally, these pressures around him. And any suggestion that the Christian life is uh, just supposed to be some sort of perfect facade of flawless porcelain with no cracks and no dings and no stresses where everything is awesome all the time. Well, that's just not biblical at all. And it's not the experience of the very spiritual and mature men and women of the Bible, the very examples that God gives us so that we can learn what it means to be faithful and to be uh, full of devotion for the Lord. And so it's just not biblical, the idea that, you know, everything is good all the time in my life. God is working together all things for the good, but you look at a guy like David, and he's a man who struggled with difficulties and with discouragement uh, to the point of despair often. But then David demonstrates a second and more important truth here, the one we really need to grab onto. When our soul is inevitably cast down, the thing to do is to lift it up to the lover of our soul. David knew who cared for his soul, who had formed him in his mother's womb, and he said, I'm going to lift my soul, that meaning who he is, his mind, his thoughts, his, uh, his person. He's going to lift that up to the lover of his soul to God in heaven. And David wasn't going to just stay down in the wallows, right? I mean, so he's, re- he's opening up this song here, and he would open up his lecture to us saying, hey, sometimes we're going to find ourselves down in the dumps, down in the wallows of life, but we don't stay there. We need to lift up our souls to the Lord. And that reminds us that we have the equipment necessary to take charge of our souls and our minds and let the mind of Christ be in us. The epistles explain this. Paul says just outright, like it's a plain thing, hey, let the mind of Christ be in you. And that assumes that we have the equipment and the empowering to take control of our own thoughts, to take control of our souls, to take control of our emotions, and allow the Lord uh, to fill us, to have that power of Christ be alive in us. And here we see it's what David is doing. In his hour of anguish and despair, he primarily and fundamentally makes the choice to control his thoughts, to go to prayer, and to remember the greatness of God, because he recognized that all of his issues, as severe as they were, he he realized that all of these issues had a spiritual solution found in 
heaven. His temporal life may have been causing him to question things, but he knew that heaven was where the answer would be found, and that's where he goes looking. Verse 3, Indeed, let no one who waits on you be ashamed. Let those be ashamed who deal treacherously without cause. For David, there's always an immense difference between those who belong to God and those who do not belong to God. Their character, the trajectory of their lives, their end results could not be more different. This is a consistent theme in his Psalms. And he's always pointing out the difference between the godly and the ungodly, believers and unbelievers, those who are children of God and those who are not. David's feeling was that you could spot a child of God a mile away and that anybody should be able to point and be like, yeah, I can tell already who that person is and to whom they belong. And let's always take note, David didn't class himself above other what we might call regular old believers. Um, He's saying here, let no one who waits on you be ashamed. He says, this is all of us who believe. We who believe, he says, are one category. Those who do not believe are a completely separate category. And there's no mistaking one group for the other in David's mind. Reading David's assessment of the world and of these two categories of life, uh, believers and unbelievers, it, it should make us at least stop and ask ourselves how different we really are from the unbelieving world. Um, and without putting a burden on any of us or without thinking that God is angry at any of us about this because we're going to see a very different picture of God here, but, but taking a look at the way that David assesses things and the way that the Bible assesses the difference between a believer and an unbeliever, is there really a difference? Is there really a difference in our behavior, for example, or our outlook or our expectation or the way that we structure our lives or plan our lives? And there was for David a very profound difference, a, a difference that ran, you know, from the bottom all the way up from, from who the person was in, in the core of their being to their future and their plans and the trajectory of their lives. And David had absolutely no interest in being a part of that other group. He had no interest in it at all. And then he's always talking about just what a bad end that group is headed towards. And so uh, he was determined and dedicated to being a follower of God. You know, if, if using New Testament vernacular, he was determined and dedicated to being a Christian. And I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be like Christ. I'm going to follow my God. I'm going to have my life transformed by him. I'm going to own him as king. It's interesting, uh, uh, this determination and dedication to being a follower of God. He admits, though, that, that those who believe are going to have to be people who wait. Notice there in verse 3, let no one who waits on you be ashamed. When we read David's prayers, we see he was frequently in need of a quick fix. I mean, you read his prayers and his psalms, they're full of uh, these messages to God like, hey, God, I'm under attack right now. My enemies have surrounded me. I'm down in a pit. I mean, and it's always images uh, that would require a quick fix. But he's also someone in the scriptures who understood that God isn't usually in the quick fix business. He's just not. As much as we would like God to be Most often, the Lord is not in the quick fix business. And so David became an expert in patience and waiting and endurance in life. 
Endurance is a necessary ingredient for our Christian lives. Charles Spurgeon once wrote this. He said, Oh, dear friends, to stand bravely for Christ for a week or two is a simple matter, but to keep on month after month and year after year is another affair. It is the length of life that tries the reality of our religion. We get a hint here in verse 3 of the pressures David must have been or may have been dealing with. Seems perhaps he had a traitor in the camp, maybe whispers of rebellion growing under his nose and outside in the palace halls. We're not exactly sure. But his response to these things was to wait on the Lord in faith, uh, not to act brashly or not to go out and seek his own vindication. But he says, hey, I, you know, it seems like people are dealing treacherously without a cause. I'm going to wait. I'm going to sit back. I'm going to lift up my soul to the Lord. I'm going to wait on the Lord and be of good courage here. That word uh, wait is a great word. It means to bind together or gather together. Those who bind together to the Lord will not be ashamed. That's the kind of waiting a Christian gets to experience, not just holding on for dear life, right? Sometimes we think about waiting like, I, I can't wait for one more second, otherwise I'm not going to make it. Um, <clears throat> but it's not that kind of waiting. It's a waiting where we bind ourselves up with the Lord and we can gather together like we are tonight to do that. And as we do that, the scriptures promise that we will not be ashamed. We won't be disappointed. We're not going to come to the end of that time and the end of that process of binding together with the Lord and realize, well, that didn't work. That was a letdown. No, we won't be ashamed, meaning we won't be disappointed. Verse 4 says, Show me your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me. For you are the God of my salvation. On you I wait all the day. So show me, teach me, lead me. David not only wants an experience with God, he wants to become experienced with God's will. He's looking for a master class of his own in the ways of God and the paths of God and the truth of God. And David is really interested in the boundaries and markers of God's narrow road. If you notice that as you read his Psalms, he's always talking about the way of the Lord and the path of the Lord. And he uses this language. He's very interested in the course that is marked out and has boundaries on it. He's very interested. He's like, that's, that's what I want. I want to be on that thing. Lord, show me where that is. Show me how to find it. Show me how to walk it. Lead me as I walk it. Uh, just like we're seeing here in Psalm 25. He's very interested. He, he wanted to be hemmed in by the will of God because David knew firsthand what it was like to be outside of the will of God. There's a few very dramatic moments in his life as we read through his story where he is very squarely outside the will of God because he chose to leave the will of God and because he chose to walk off of that well-marked boundary. And the result was always disaster, whether it was his fleeing to the Philistines, whether it was his sin with Bathsheba, um, some other mistakes that he made in his life. And so at this point, he's saying, hey, you know what, Lord, show me your ways Teach me your paths and then lead me on those things so that I can stay hemmed in by your will. Uh, This past week, I was sick on the couch. And so uh, when I wasn't sleeping, I was rereading The Hobbit for the first time in a long time. Great little book. And there's a section of the journey, if you're familiar with the story or if you're not familiar, where they have to travel through the dangerous Mirkwood Forest, right? Now, Bilbo and company are given very clear instructions 
to about how to get from one side to the other. You can definitely get from one side of the forest to the other side. And there's a clear path. The path is protected. It's marked out. And they're told again and again by people who know better, do not leave the path under any circumstances. It's belabored to them over and over. And they say, yeah, okay, we won't do it. We won't do it. We won't do it. So they get on the path. And we know it's, you know, already, if if you haven't read the book, you know what's going to happen. It's a big, thick forest. It's gloomy, and they don't get any sunshine. They're running out of food. And as the days press on, the little traveling group gets weary and weary and weary, and they feel like, hey, we're not making enough progress. When are we ever going to get out of this thing? And their endurance wears thin. And so they start losing hope. And so they get impatient after that. And rather than keep to the path and keep to the markers and the boundaries... They take a vote together, right? And they decide, well, in this circumstance, we should leave the road and we'll find a secret supply somewhere. We'll find a different way out. We'll find a different way through. Yes, that's completely contrary to what these wise people have told us and it's off of the path. And yeah, there's a check in our spirit that tells us we shouldn't do it. But if we go together, what can go wrong, they think, right? And they, th- and they even say, hey, we'll find our way back if we need to. And I just thought, man, what a great sort of uh, illustration in literature of what it's like to be walking with the Lord and then to be tempted to leave the will of God. Or I can get back to the will of God whenever I want to. Well, if you know the story... They leave the path and immediately fall headlong into disaster after disaster. And as a result, they barely escape with their lives. In fact, they end up becoming prisoners in a dungeon for quite some time and uh, almost lose everything. They certainly don't get back to where they were before. And it's only because of the uh, grace of the author that they survive their mistake. But here David comes before the Lord in really great humility, no pompousness, no arrogance or bravado. And he says, Lord, I only want to go your way. I only want to do what you want to do. Show me, teach me, lead me. And it clues us in that even wise men, very wise men, must have God's will revealed to them. And David was the man after God's own heart. David had incredible closeness with God and great understanding. He was used by God. I mean, he's a magnificent hero of the faith, right? I mean, if you pulled a thousand Christians and you said, who's your favorite Bible character? Who, you know, who do you want to be like in the Bible? I mean, how many people, hundreds and hundreds of them would say, oh, David, I want to be like David. And yet, even he's saying, hey, I need to be shown the way. I I don't have it within me to figure this out on my own. I need the Lord to just come and and you just got to reveal this to me. I'm not wise enough on my own. I'm not smart enough on my own. I need to be led like a sheep is led by its shepherd. And so even wise men must have God's will revealed to them. And even mature Christians have more to learn. We don't know when David wrote this psalm, but... Even as a young man, David was a pretty mature guy, right? I mean, we're impressed by even young David and his heart for the Lord, his understanding of the scriptures, how he would meditate on the word day and night. I mean, he was a mature believer, right? Yes, he had his moments of weakness and sin, of course, but he was a mature believer. I mean, someone to look up to with great understanding and insight and all of that. But he's saying, hey, even a mature Christian has more to learn. Hey, Lord, teach me, teach me. 
And, and we also learn here that no matter how much progress we've made in the Christian life, every day is a day to be led by God according to his plan and purposes. And so a great little um, laundry list here that David gives us for every Christian at every stage of their spiritual lives. I need to be, Lord, I need you to show me yourself, show me your will. I need you to teach me your truth. I need you to lead me day by day. Now, here's something that really caught my attention, made me want to look at this passage for our study tonight. David says here, on you I wait all the day. That requires a lot of patience and a lot of self-control, right? I mean, if you just take it at face value, on you I wait all day. Well, that's quite a lot of self-control. The thing about David is that he was not always very good at self-control, was he? Some of the major failures of his life or the near failures were due to rash actions or lapses of self-control. And so how could he say that? How can this be true of him in verse 5 when he also demonstrates to us at other times a lack of self-control? Well, I think it shows that David is a vivid example for us of what happens when a person will walk with God. He wasn't perfect, far from it, but when he walked with God, impossible fruit was produced in his life by the Holy Spirit. Because the same man who would fly off the handle in violent rage toward Nabal and go and set out to kill a whole community of innocent people because of it, that's the same man who, when walking with God, could be in the cave with Saul, and everyone around him is saying, you need to kill this dude, and he's delivered in your hand, and he says, no, I'm going to control myself, and I'm not going to do that. Uh, It's a magnificent thing. It wasn't David's doing, right? It's not that David was just a man of great self-control. We know that he wasn't a man of great self-control apart from God. It's God's doing in the life of someone who's obedient to him and bound to him. And uh, if it was David, if it was just him accomplishing patience and self-control, well, then Bathsheba wouldn't have happened, and Nabal wouldn't have happened, and these other mistakes wouldn't have happened. But when a person walks with God and fixes their eyes on the Lord and decides to be led and taught what God wants for their lives, then that person is transformed by the power of God and bears all sorts of incredible spiritual fruit we read about in the Word. I think our tendency is to see the characteristics of spiritual life in the Bible, say the list of the fruit of the Spirit, for example, and we tend to think, okay, I need to do those things in order to be a good Christian, right? But that's that's not what the Bible teaches. David has figured out, as we'll see in a moment, there's nothing good in him. He's, man, there's nothing good in me, Lord. I can't generate godliness, Instead, he asked, he had discovered the secret to rich, abundant fellowship with God is not working, it's waiting on the Lord. It's binding himself up with the Lord. If you ask David after lecture one day, after class, wait, what's the secret to a vibrant relationship with God? He'd say what he already said here, bind yourself up with your Lord. Uh, be teachable, expect God to direct you and grow you, even if you've been on your trip for a long, long time. And whatever you do, don't leave the path, which means we must not remove ourselves from the boundaries of God's will, because as God, as David also knew firsthand, the only disaster awaits outside the markers. There's no truth out there. There's only lies and shame and destruction. Verse 6, remember, O Lord, your tender mercies and your loving kindnesses, for they are from old. You know, we're the ones that need the reminder of how loving and gracious God is. He hasn't forgotten. It's who he is. 
David says there that God's kind and tender grace toward us are from of old, meaning that they're not just some new look God is trying out. He didn't rebrand as the kinder, gentler deity to see how that might help his poll numbers, right? God is love, not just in a generic sense, but toward you. He's love. And David always characterizes this love as a caring, personal, affectionate love. You know, sometimes you'll hear people talk. Uh, a lot of times when you hear people uh, being asked about their relationship, say, with their dad, and you'll sometimes hear something like this. You'll say, well, he loved me the best way he knew how, right? We've all kind of heard something like that. And we understand what that means. It means that there was uh, that love was completely lacking in tenderness and closeness, right? I mean, we all understand what the person means when they say that, but that's not how God loves us. It's not like, well, the Lord loves me. He loves me the best way he knows how. He loves us better than the best father with an unfailing, loyal, compassionate love. Loving kindness here means a deep awareness and sympathy for us. This is the way that God relates to us forever, from of old and into eternity. And again, God doesn't need reminding of this. We're the ones that need the reminder. And so next time you're faced with discouragement or difficulty or defeat, you remember the kind of love with which God loves you. Close our time tonight with verse 7. Do not remember the sins of my youth nor my transgressions. According to your mercy, remember me for your goodness sake, O Lord. There weren't only enemies outside David's palace walls. There was a traitor inside his heart too, and he knew it. He had spent time reveling in the greatness of God's kind mercy, but that made him realize his great need of forgiveness. And so now in his prayer, he says, okay, Lord, when you look at me, please forget about what I've done and just see your own goodness and your own grace. That's what he appeals to, goodness sake, the goodness of God. And David here exposes the absolute absurdity of self-righteousness. He had nothing to merit God's favor. He had no value within himself by which he could commend himself to God. In fact, he knew that the more God looked at him, the more tarnish and rot would be found. And that's David, the man after God's own heart, David, the slayer of giants, David, the anointed king, the man with whom God made a unique covenant. And David says, hey, Lord, there's nothing in me for your goodness and by your mercy look on me and and see me as clean. But again and again in his master class lectures, he, he points out that, man, without mercy, I'm lost. And by extension, all of us are too. But also notice this, David was sure that God could in one fell swoop wipe him clean. By the power of his saving grace, the Lord could in a moment carry away all that transgression and all of David's iniquity and That's what David counted on. Not his own achievements or greatness or popularity or importance. It was God's nature and character of grace that David rested his soul upon. And so he could come into the presence of this kindly king and drop all of his sin, all of his imperfection right there at the feet of the Lord. And David, though he was humble and ashamed of his sin, he knew he could leave it there and that God would take care of everything. (coughs) And David realized that a God who could deal with that could also deal with the day-to-day difficulties and long-term direction of his life. And so in David's master class lectures, the baseline ideas about God are that he is gracious and kind and compassionate and merciful and that he has the power to save. That's our God. A God who doesn't just love us generically or out of obligation, but he loves us with a personal, affectionate love. 
a bind us up together kind of love. A love that listens and hears and sympathizes and has much to show us and teach us and lead us in no matter where we find ourselves today. 